Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I am Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome to Couched. So today we are extremely excited to have the award-winning environmentalist, founder of the climate activist organization 350.org, and author of over 15 books, including the bestseller, The End of Nature, Bill McKibben. And he's in conversation today with esteemed psychoanalysts, philosopher, educator, and author of numerous psychoanalytic books, Dr. Donna Orange. Please do go to our website to read more about their many accomplishments and work at www.couchpodcast.org. So I would like to start off our conversation today by asking each of you to say a little about your current work, particularly the issues you're finding most compelling these days and what you're finding intriguing about what each other are doing. And either one of you can start. Donna, why don't you go first? I could start, perhaps, by saying that I have not met you, Bill, but I heard you speak here in Claremont, California in 2015 at John Cobb's big ecological civilization conference. I was a minor speaker and you were a plenary speaker, and it was an enormous thing. But it, I heard also people like Wes Jackson and Vandana Shiva and the three of you are the ones I remember best. But it was after that that I became, I'd been worried about the climate problem for a long time, but I became very concerned that nobody in psychoanalysis was writing about it at all, that you could go to a book table at the biggest conferences in the country, at Division 39, for example, and there was not a single book that had anything to do with climate. And... When I asked my editor what's up with this, she said I should write one. So that's how it came that I, in 2015 and 16, started working on the Climate Crisis, Psychoanalysis, and Radical Ethics book. So you are, in fact, are probably part of the impetus for, for that. The thing I think about it now so much is that it's grossly out of date, that everything is so much worse than... Oh, what I said it was then, and I said then that it was dire. Now I've been working more, again, on the intersection of racial justice with the climate crisis, and I'm very interested in Judith Butler's work on nonviolence, which, of course, overlaps with some of yours. In order to prepare for today, I read your Falter book. I thought that would bring me at least close to your contemporary thinking, but I'm hoping that both of us will talk a little bit about what we've been thinking since the last major book and also, you know, how we would say things differently if we were writing them now. Maybe that's enough of a start for me. That's a good start. I get to think almost weekly about sort of where things stand because I've been writing Along with my kind of activist work, I've been writing this weekly newsletter for The New Yorker yes. on the climate crisis. So every week I get to kind of bring us up to date. And in fact, this week I wrote a longer than usual one. 
because we're at the fifth anniversary of the Paris Climate Accords. We're at the end of the Trump years. And I think because I turn 60 tomorrow, which means, you know, since I wrote The End of Nature when I was 27, I've been dealing with this, thinking about this issue for kind of four-fifths of my adult life. And so it's the right moment to ask me sort of what I'm thinking about. The, the science has gotten, as you say, ever more dire. November, we found out this morning, was the warmest November ever. And it looks possible that 2020 will reset the record for the hottest year ever, which is completely amazing. There's a big La Nina cooling event going on in the Pacific, but it's not enough to mask the overwhelming heating signal, which has been 2020 has been the year of the pandemic. But bubbling along underneath it has been this other terror, too. We began the year with the worst fires we've ever seen, in this case in Australia. We think that three billion animals died in the course of those couple of weeks. We've had the worst fires we've ever seen in Siberia, which is bad news because they were digging into the peatlands up there, which are a huge source of carbon. Obviously, the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, but down in South America, they've had the worst fire year ever. And a quarter of what's called the Pantanal, the largest wetland on planet Earth, has burned in the last couple of months. In the middle of all that, we've had 30 hurricanes and tropical storms in the Atlantic, a, a, a new record. And the last couple of those crashed hard into the same place in Central America. In November, we had a Cat 4 storm and then a Cat 5 storm hit 10 miles apart. And the damage that they did there was almost beyond belief. The estimate is that Honduras may see damage equivalent to 40% of its GDP. By comparison, when Katrina took out New Orleans, that was the biggest disaster in U.S. history. It was about 1% of our GDP. But the numbers are hide what's actually going on. Uh, it was I was talking with the woman who was down there for the Washington Post. She was reporting about a, a woman was living under a bridge with her three children uh, after the storm. Her job was collecting trash. She had three horses to pull her cart. All of them drowned. Now she pulls the cart herself and will be for the foreseeable future. All of which is just a way of saying there's nothing even the slightest bit theoretical or abstract about all this anymore. And that the trauma that it's inflicting is incredibly real, sharp, and physical in many parts of the world, which doesn't detract at all from the fact that it's also a kind of ominous psychological trauma, too, for all kinds of people. You'd have a better sense. Vermont, where I live, has been not unscathed, but less scathed. You'd have a better sense, Donna, just from life in California. I was born there, and I've always in my whole life thought of California as our kind of image of relaxation and ideal and retreat. And now it seems increasingly a, a fearful place, one where when fire season comes, people's mood must darken a little, no? Oh, indeed. I mean, where I live, we haven't had any fires within five miles of us, but that's not saying much. We actually have more fires in the next county right this week because we're having another Santa Ana wind event and we're expecting some more this coming week. 
And we've never had fires in December before. This is, it's really fearsome. I mean, we just thought we had the earthquakes to worry about here. And now we're thinking more about evacuation for fire than for earthquake. And there are many, many days when you can't see the sky because it's so full of smoke and you're told to stay indoors because it's too dangerous for old people like me to be outdoors. You mentioned your age, so I'll mention mine. I'm turning 77. I never dreamed anything like this. Growing up in Oregon, hiking in the mountains and loving loving the outdoors, And then seeing Oregon absolutely devastated by fires this year, close to the little towns where I grew up, it's just ongoingly shocking. And of course, for people like you, Bill, and many of us who understand why this is happening, it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous (laughs) sort of in the same sense that the spread of the pandemic is outrageous at this moment. We're indoors for the pandemic, not only for the fires. Yeah. You all are professionals, so you won't use this. The phrase that often comes into my mind, and it's probably politically incorrect and analytically wrong and everything else, but it's just there's something completely crazy making about both these situations in that we were told about them. I know because I did some of the telling. 30 years yes. ago. And it's yes. not like it's not like nobody listened. I mean, my book was in 24 languages, bestseller all over the place. And for me, it was a great revelation that it took. I thought we were back then in the 1980s, 1990s, that we were having an argument. And that if people wrote enough books and had enough symposiums and whatever, that the evidence would pile up high enough that our leaders would have no choice but to go to work. I, I really took me a long time, too long to figure out that we were actually in a fight, not an argument, and that the fight was not about data and reason. It was about money and power and and so on. And that's when we started building movements to try and kind of be able to fight back. But there is something, I was thinking about this the other day, if the planet had just started warming because, I don't know, the sun started getting hotter or the planet drifted closer to the sun or something like that, it would still be bad. You'd still have all the same practical problems that went with it, but you wouldn't have that same sense of just rage and despair. Do you think, too, that it would, I mean, given that it wouldn't be the fault of fossil fuel industry, that we would have mobilized in a different way. I imagine yes, and I imagine well, you might say yes. Yeah, to some degree. And I definitely would have said yes a while ago. <laughs> but this is something I want your guys' thought on. I mean, yes, it's true that the single biggest problem in fighting this has been the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to change its business model, and it has enough money and power to keep doing that. On the other hand, it's not like there's any trillion-dollar industry that depends on us all dying from coronavirus And yet we're behaving in all kinds of irrational, weird ways there, too. So, Uh, You know, Bill, uh, there's an interesting section in your falter book that, for me, hitches on to this. And it's all your concern about artificial intelligence. Psychoanalysts, starting with Ferency in, I think, 1909, have written about the development of the child's sense of reality. I've been trying to think about what's in common between the ways 
that enormous numbers of people in our country have reacted to both climate emergency and to the pandemic. And this is one thing I'm wondering about from a more or less psychoanalytic point of view and from a developmental point of view. That's really interesting. I mean, my guess, my tendency, since I don't think in psychoanalytic terms, has been to, but but in some ways this crosses that line too, has been to suspect that part of what's happening too is that someplace in the last 75 years of living in our society, we've effectively been converted from citizens into consumers as our kind of prime identification. And that that kind of hyper-individualism that's necessary to make consumer societies work really well is the exact opposite of what we need in order to try and deal with problems that demand we come together, even as simple as telling everyone to wear a mask. It's funny. I live in Vermont, which has had the, the best experience with the coronavirus of any place in the country. And I've written a little bit about looking at the levels of social cohesion and social trust here, which are higher. They're not as high as they should be, but they're higher than almost any place else in the country, too. And thinking that those may be related in some way. That's why I spent so much time in Falter writing about Ayn Rand, because it seems to me that that sense that you yourself are the center of the universe just turns out to be a bad idea in a lot of ways. And you talk about the forces that are trying to destroy any belief that we have in social good or common good in, in society as society, again, tied to the fossil fuel industry and the oligarchs and greed. But I think this is kind of an overlap with Donna's thinking about shame and envy. And I wonder, Donna, if you could say a little bit more about how you think how we manage shame and envy contributes to this phenomenon of, of individualism at all costs, even if it destroys us. Well, thank you for that. I think it it hitches perfectly onto what Bill's saying about individualism. And, and I grew up in the Ayn Rand era and was horrified. My education prepared me to believe in the common good. That's kind of the, as if that's a thing. And between Ayn Rand and Margaret Thatcher, two of the most destructive women I, that I can imagine in terms of teaching and validating and affirming extreme individualism that, as you say, turns into consumerism and and has no regard for the neighbor. But for me, that all hangs together. The shame and envy part is how we process all that as an individual, especially in a consumer society. If I don't have what you have, you have a more beautiful coat or a fancier car or a bigger house or whatever, I should be ashamed. I can remember as a young person being asked, if you so smart, why ain't you rich? <laughs> and I, in other words, humiliating the person yeah. for not having more. Yeah. And the flip side of shame in that way of thinking about shame, I think there's there are other important ways to consider shame, by the way, is envy. I am worth less than you if you have more than I do, or if you're more beautiful, more famous, more mm -hmm. accomplished, more whatever, rich, of course. 
And I think that's a psychoanalytic problem that becomes a societal problem. But I think psychoanalysis has a chance to understand some of that. In many ways, the most effective advocates around climate change and fighting the fossil fuel industry, which is pretty much the same thing at the moment, are indigenous communities around the world. And not to romanticize or sentimentalize or anything else, often it does seem as if there's just a more straightforward sense of self and community that makes things a little easier. Yeah, along those lines, I was struck by your description, Donna, of communal existential trauma. And you write about Jonathan Lear's account of the Crow tribe who really lost their culture when the buffalo disappeared and how devastating that was and how they talked about being unable to even lift themselves up afterwards, that life had completely lost meaning. And they said, after this, nothing happened. And they found a way through their chief plenty coup to come back. And I wonder if something from their indigenous tradition could help us come back, because I think we're also going through an existential culture loss. I mean, I think little by little, our culture is deteriorating and it isn't what it used to be, as you said, no more common good. Well, this is why Jonathan Lear's book, Radical Hope, which is about this story that you're referencing here, which I find tremendously moving, is one of the major themes for the Climate Psychology Alliance in Britain. They have used that from the five years ago or so when they started that group. It's gotten very large now, but it was very small. And I was with them in the very beginning, the climate psychology people. They seem to get involved. Well, they get in a lot of discussions, but one of the ones they get involved in is what is the ethical thing for psychology and psychoanalytic people to be doing now? Should we be preparing people for the end of the world and how to do that as humanely and justly and compassionately as possible? Or should we be trying to fight on in some way? Are we already to the end of the culture? Certainly, I take what you've said, Bill, about faltering. And I'm inclined to think that that hasn't gotten any better since your book came out a couple of years ago. If anything, we have more signs of falter than we did then. But It's so interesting to see that the climate and psychology people are all very intensely interested in these ethical questions. Is it just to have children, either because of what we might inflict on them or because the earth is overpopulated? All, you know, these kinds of things are also questions that patients bring into our consulting rooms. I was just reminded of certain patients when you were talking about radical hope and these questions that are being asked in this group, which I find actually heartening that the questions are being asked. I have several patients who are quite despairing. And of course, there are their own personal psychological traumas and their psychodynamics that are at play and why they become so despairing, but they're actually very awake to the realities of climate change in a way that sometimes can confuse myself and some other clinicians that I've had these conversations with as to do we let that foster that expression of that despair or are we supposed to do something else to counter it? 
So I, I don't have that resolved by any means, but I want to, you know, underline that issue, which also reminds me of a line in the very beginning of your book, Bill, where you say that the author, referring to yourself, lives in a state of engagement, not despair, which I thought might be an antidote or a tonic of a kind. Not right. to say that that there's no room for despair, but there's something else you're, you're putting out there that I think is very important. Yeah, this is difficult territory because this is a battle against climate change that we're going to lose in part anyway. And we already have lost it. If you live in Honduras, forget it. Your horses are all dead. And even if we do everything right at this point, there's some chance that we may have waited too late to get started. The physics of it all are enormous and the momentum is strong. But the best science, of course, indicates that we, if we move very quickly, and quickly meaning the next decade, then we should be able to have some effect on how high the temperature eventually settles, which may make all the difference in the world. I mean, a world where the temperature goes up two degrees Celsius is going to be very difficult, but it may be civilization survivable. And a world where the temperature goes up three or four degrees Celsius probably isn't. And so, among other things, this leads to the you know one important question for psychoanalysts and everybody else is thinking about how we take care of those people who are actually fighting this fight. There's two, three, four, five percent of the population now engaged in this battle. It's probably the biggest movement we've yet seen in this world. It's not enough people, but those people are indispensable, and we're making the you know great progress in weakening the fossil fuel industry and cutting off their supply of money, preventing new infrastructure from being built on and on and on. And for the next few years, these are vital tasks, but the people doing them burn out at a high rate. I feel as if for me that I've been lucky in one sense in that I had a very long time to get used to the idea and scale of the trouble that we're in and must have though it overwhelms me on occasion, must have built up some kind of muscles psychologically that let me cope with that. But I, that's impossible to ask of all the 17-year-olds who are striking from school. And I mean, the fallout from all of that's going to be, I mean, just it's very painful for me to watch because these are people that I value enormously and, and admire enormously and fear for enormously. Are there networks or services in place at this point in time that bridge between the psychotherapeutic communities and the activist communities in climate work that have been made? I, I thought of something very concrete here. But. Yeah, no, there's a little bit of that. And there's people, trainers and therapists and stuff who will work, but it's at the level of, I don't know what, the like badly staffed field hospital out in the yeah. middle. Of, yeah. You know. yeah, that seems like a place for improvement. It well, it seems like a place for us to truly invest our attention and some resources. We are also challenged at this moment to support the doctors and nurses in all these COVID wards who are committing suicide at a very fast rate, but I'm afraid that Bill's pointing us to another similar crisis. So that we've got a double sort of obligation here as people in the psi communities, if you will, for stabilizing and support for the climate workers 
and stabilizing and support for the medical workers. And, and the one slight difference is, but this may mean something psychologically, there's not going to be a vaccine for the climate crisis. No, that that's is, right. It, we deal with it on a much more open-ended level. And, and there's, there is a difference between things that are going to come to an end someday, a war, the Trump administration, something, and things that just go on forever. Yes. And there's a psychological difference between those two. I imagine. Because you can bear almost anything if you actually believe that it's going to get better or that there's an end, an end to your prison term or whatever it is. Uh, but it's when you don't know that. That's what the Holocaust survivors tell us. And when it doesn't look like you're going to be able to see improvement from what you're doing or that it's ever going to be cooler again or have a more stable climate again or anything like that. The other factor that is enormously involved in both problems, although probably differentially, but not so much, and I think you pointed to it with the Honduras story, is that it is the poorest and most fragile, or as Judith Butler would say, precarious, people who live in precarity already, who are getting murdered by the climate change and by the virus. And I'm more and more convinced that until we get totally serious about social justice and racial justice and the long-term effects of colonialism and take the crimes that our countries, our you know, white countries, have inflicted on people seriously, that we're not going to really approach either climate or pandemic justly. And we will come out of this with more mental health problems than than we've got now. I well, think. I'll tell you where the test is. One of the places the test is going to come. And Honduras is a good example, but a small case of what's going mm-hmm. to be very large. There's going to be, there already are, but there's going to be many, many tens of millions of people on the move around the world. Mm-hmm. Refugees yes. who need a new place to go. And in this case of climate, It's not like anybody in Honduras did a damn thing to cause the trouble that they're in. The iron law of global warming is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and harder you get hit. And I worry, obviously, about the politics of that are going to be, they're already difficult in this country. And I also worry sometimes about, on the one hand, we need to understand and deeply feel the guilt that comes from being the ones who cause this trouble and what that means in terms of our responsibility. But I'm also regularly assured by people that guilt is not a useful emotion for human beings to feel. And so I don't know what to make of all that. I can't help but think of Melanie Klein here on reparative guilt versus paranoid guilt. And psychoanalysis does a pretty good job theorizing guilt and actually points to certain types of guilt that can be mobilizing and certain types of guilt that are paralyzing. So, yes. That yeah. would be good Don, to know about. Yeah, Donnie, yeah, you want to say more? Stephen Mitchell wrote about this, Romy, and I'm, no, I'm sure you mm. know this, as guilt and guiltiness. Right, yes. And guilt is actually something that can motivate us to turn a corner. And guiltiness is just wallowing, and I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. 
and it gets you, it's completely self-centered thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm thinking I'm, you know, not a climate expert in the way that you two are, but I spent several months hiking in the Rocky Mountains and up through through Canada to British Columbia in my early 20s. It was a solo hike, and I had a lot of time to get to know the woods, and it became a place of comfort for me. And one of the things that I took from that is how much each tree is completely dispensable. And at the same time, and, and insignificant, but how utterly important it is for nurturing other life that we think about, the ways that we're dependent and interdependent. This is true of people, too, that we're each unimportant as individuals, but quite significant for who we nurture, what we nurture. And that do you think that there's any benefit from arranging for people to spend some time in the woods? So many people live in an urban environment now and really have very little exposure to nature. How much value would there be in giving people the, that kind of an experience? It, it does change one's perspective on life. Yeah. I mean, Donna is a good child of the Cascades, so she can weigh in here too. And, and I just say for me, there's very few things that have been more important in my life. And partly that's because, I think largely it's because it's a great relief to be reminded that you're a small part of something very, very large. And I find it particularly, the woods doesn't reliably give you quite that same sense anymore because you go out there and if they're not on fire, then you know where we are, it's this snow should have come by now and it hasn't. And so on and so forth. It's a little harder to escape. It's one of the reasons that I love a good clear night in the country where I can look up at the stars and be reminded of the scale of things. And there's relief there and a a kind of escape from the message of the culture, which is that you're the absolute front and center of everything all the time. Well, and kind of a cure for grandiosity, right? We think Mm. we're so omnipotent, Mm. you know, that that we really control the planet, and we so don't. I mean, the problem is that some of our boasts are, are have come true now, you know. My favorite book in the Bible is the book of Job, where Job demands that God come and explain why he's suffering, and God appears and just gives him this beautiful tour of the universe, you know, shows him ostriches and gazelles and lions and so on. And that seems to be enough for Job, this idea that he's a small part. And God taunts him a little bit. You know, if you're so smart, tell me where, you know, the do you mm-hmm. tell the waves where to break mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Well, that was always, and this may be some deep, interesting issue beyond our my pay grade anyway, but that was always the response of human beings. We were small and the world around us was large and we had to make some sense of it. Beginning sometime in the middle of the last century, that shifted. It was Oppenheimer at Alamogordo watching the first explosion of the atomic bomb that quoted from the Gita. You know, we are become as gods, destroyers of worlds. We've managed to not repeat that after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think because we were good at imagining what a few mushroom clouds over a few cities would add up to. But it seems to have been beyond our imagination to figure out that the explosion of a 
billion cylinders and a billion pistons every second could do the same kind of damage. But they have. I mean, and now our, our grandiosity, sadly, is kind of real. As a society, we determine how high up the ocean goes and what the temperature is going to be and, and so on and so forth. And I have a feeling that may be a interesting emerging mental problem all of its own, this yes. sense of constant crowdedness and just of nothing beyond us. Yes. I, I like all of what you've just said, Bill, very, very much about the grandiosity and all. And, and going out into the woods, if we can, that's great. But anybody who goes in the woods anywhere near me here is a fire danger. What used to be a refuge is now a hazard not to your, just to yourself, but to the, both the natural and the human world. And that's another tragedy. Yeah, that's what I meant by culture loss, right? We just have, we're losing it. Yeah, go ahead, Romy. Oh, no, I was thinking too of, of those who don't have access due to various lack of means and lack of resources to nature. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a way of finding connection to the larger scale and a connection to the feeling of interdependence, not just the idea of interdependence. And I have to just bring this up. We only have five minutes. But in your book, Bill, you talk about living in your Greenwich Village apartment and that you follow. I'm so fascinated by this. You followed all the lines out, the electrical and the water as a way I'm sensing of your curiosity for understanding interdependence. Is that right? Absolutely. This was when I was very young, just first had arrived at the New Yorker as a 21-year-old or 22-year-old writer. And, I, and so, yeah, I went down the, you know, went to Brazil or up into the Arctic, all the places that Con Ed was getting power, the city was getting water or whatever it was. And it was, yes, I wanted to understand interdependence. And, and what I came away with was a sense of both the beauty and the fragility of the physical arrangements under which we live, you know. Manhattan seems like a place where you can just mint money and whatever out of thin air and so on. But in, in fact, you know, it's utterly dependent on everything working correctly in this large natural world. That set me up when I was reading the, the early science about climate change in the next few years to understand why it was going to be the kind of issue it was going to be. Oh, one of the things that we do in our built environment is, I mean, if you grew up in the suburbs or in the city, they're sort of machines for hiding how the world works. You know, mm -hmm. you have no idea mm -hmm. where the water is coming from or where mm -hmm. it goes or anything else. And therefore, it's very easy to just imagine that it's all, I mean, in our minds, I think, at least in the minds of our leaders, because you can tell by looking at the language that they use, they've come to understand the physical world as a kind of subset of the economy or, you know, things that are more important. Yes. I mean, think about the words that we, you know, the economy is is hurting. The economy is recovering. The economy is, <laughs> you know, uh, w w whatever it is. But we don't, we just take the physical world for granted. When, of course, if you think about it for a few minutes, you understand that it's gotten it backwards. The other one's nested in the other one. Absolutely. Mm. You know, I know we're running out of time, so I want to just say, Bill, it is such an incredible pleasure to hear you talk and think. And we owe you an enormous debt of gratitude, those of us who haven't specialized in this area for as long and as deeply as you have. Well, right back at you. And many, many thanks to all of you for thinking about these 
the way to understand climate change, I've come to think, is not as a kind of issue on a list of issues to be ticked off. It really is a different lens through which to look at the world. And the questions that we're asking in almost every instance, I mean, we, we've just gotten to a couple of them today, but I mean, for theologians, the question about people being bigger than God is a big question. For psychoanalysts, the idea of how you survive on a world where the thing that was always the taken-for-granted backdrop is now precarious and shifting and scary, the intergenerational aspects of all of this that are so sad and strange, the ways that it attacks the, the vulnerable and precisely the people who did the least to cause it, all of these things make it a kind of staggeringly painful and staggeringly interesting. I mean, this is the question for our lifetimes, the way that, I, I don't know what, like having to deal with fascism in Europe was the, the question mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. generations ago. And so I'm so grateful to have you fully engaged in thinking it through. Thank you. I mean, we will keep trying to foster more awareness in our communities. Amen. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Thank you.